You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning, Grace Community Church family. I'm really sorry to have to be coming to you this way rather than us gathering at the church to worship our Lord. Uh, thank you, David and Sarah, for the music that we have heard so far. Thank you for all who have participated in this service in various places. Uh, if you hear children playing, dogs barking, lawnmowers going, I am recording this on Saturday morning. And so don't be too judgmental on those that you hear engaged in activity on Sunday morning, hopefully when you're watching this. Before we get going, I wanted to ask for a special prayer for a couple of people. First of all, for the Painter family. Jason, uh, Jason's father uh, died suddenly earlier this week uh, with respiratory issues, and Jason went to Virginia to uh, conduct a graveside service for his father. What a tough time for that to happen. Uh, and so pray for the painters, all of them, uh, many of them, just so close to their grandfather, all the children, and Jason and Sarah, we just want to pray for them. Also want to call your attention to a special prayer request for Carter Witt. Uh, the Witts, Jeff and Lisa, being the parents, have attended our church several times in the last year. Uh, and Carter... Uh, is their 18-year-old son. Another point of reference for you is that Lisa Witt is James Harris' uh, sister. So Jeff and Lisa, uh, parents of Carter, are quite distressed, as you might imagine. Carter has Down syndrome. He's 18 years old. And they took him to the hospital yesterday, or Friday, as it is now, uh, to... Uh, take care of pneumonia, uh, what turned out to be pneumonia, he was diagnosed with pneumonia, they were giving him a lot of oxygen and decided that he needed to be transferred to Duke. So they came and took him in an ambulance, but they would not allow Jeff and Lisa to go. You can imagine how painful this is for them. Every day of Carter's life, one of them has been with their little man almost all the time, occasional dinner out, something like that. But Carter has been with them all the time, and now he's in Duke um, recovering from pneumonia. So pray for him. As I report this to you, he is in better shape this morning and uh, hopefully coming home soon. Well, I know there are a lot of other requests we could consider as a church family, and please take advantage of Faith Life to uh, make your request known that you want everyone in the church to know about or be in touch with your home group. And while we could spend a lot more time here, and maybe will sometime, uh, for now, let's turn our attention to God's Word. And I want to begin with a question, as I so often do. If you could have dinner with anyone that you want, who would it be? I, I'm not talking about a spouse. Let's, let's say, actually, dinner and some time afterwards. I'm not talking about a spouse or a boyfriend, girlfriend, or someone you want to be your spouse or a boyfriend, girlfriend, but someone 
Who is fascinating to you? It could be someone who is alive now. It could be someone from history. Who would it be? And let me take the pressure off of you right now and say that you are not allowed to pick Jesus. Although Jesus is always a good answer, right? Same sort of question, different angle. Who is the most fascinating person you have ever met? Maybe it happened in a chance meeting, or perhaps it's someone with whom you frequently interact. If it was an unexpected meeting and you heard your person of interest say profound things, don't you just wish that you had a recording of that evening so that you could play it back? Because you can't remember everything that you heard. Now, imagine for just a moment that just after dinner and as the evening was getting ready to get in high gear when your friend would be speaking, you heard extremely unsettling news. If you're able to allow your heart and mind to go to this place, then you have some sense of what the disciples felt as Jesus began his farewell discourse with them, telling them, that he would be going away. Our text today is John 14, 25 through 31. In our current crisis, we are eager to hear and understand the teaching of our Lord. In the moment itself, the disciples were confused and overwhelmed. The flow of John 13 to 17 at times, you may have noticed, seems a bit choppy at times. Uh, if we had been there, though, we would understand the back and forth. Jesus is speaking, and a disciple will interrupt and say, wait, wait a minute, what did you say a few minutes ago? Did you say that you're leaving? You can also sort of sense Jesus' uh, understanding when he says, wait, I, I know what you're thinking, and I want to address that. I know what you're worried about. You should be happy for me. But you cannot get past your own insecurities. One day you're going to understand that whatever is for my glory, according to God's will, will be for your good. Let's read our text where there are several important truths for us to grasp. John 14, verses 25 through 31. And give me just a moment. I thought I had... Put this on airplane mode. I had, but it's still receiving text, so you may hear something here and there. John 14, 25. These things I, Jesus, have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk with you much, 
For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Father, your word has always comforted us, convicted us, encouraged us. We need your word now because we need you now. May this text come alive in our hearts. And as it does so, may we yield ourselves to you. For it is in the name of Jesus, the one who spoke the words we read today, and the one who is exalted and glorified above all. In his name, amen. It is never a bad thing for us to be faced with our own mortality. I imagine the older saints in our congregation who are most at risk are the readiest to go and meet the Lord should coronavirus come to visit them. The young always think that they are going to to live forever. I know that I did. In fact, it's only been in recent years when I've begun to suspect that this is not true. I'm not going to live forever. The young think they can defeat all things that that come at them and threaten, threaten them. But the virus has brought us to our collective knees as a nation. But it's not really the virus that has brought us to our knees, is it? It is the Lord who has brought us to our knees. Again, for the believer, God does this in love. It is never a bad thing to be confronted with our own mortality. Parents, you're going to have to translate this, and I know that you've already been talking about this and having these discussions at some level. We can all take courage in what follows in our text. Jesus essentially told his disciples that he was going away, but provision had already been made for them, and it would be a provision that would bring them much joy. But how could they possibly understand such a thing? They couldn't, but Jesus assured them it would make sense one day. The thing to do in the moment, Jesus said, is to trust, to believe. That's still the thing to do, isn't it? Trust in this moment for us. The teaching that Jesus shared with his disciples was information overload. He knew they wouldn't be able to retain everything that he told them. But he assured them that God had a plan that was even better than what they currently knew. The paraclete, the one called to come alongside believers, the advocate and comforter, the blessed Holy Spirit would bring all things to their memory that Jesus had told them after they departed. They were not buying into the possibility, though, that Jesus leaving was a good thing. You know how that is when someone says, I'm, I'm going to be leaving. No, no, don't leave. And yet, Jesus said, you don't get it now. You don't understand it now, but you will. It's a good thing. We have learned from the disciples' mistakes And so we never resist change in our own lives, even though the Lord may be building something grand for us and in us and in the kingdom. 
Uh, no, we haven't gotten that one yet. Verse 26, when understood correctly, helps us understand how the Bible works. When we open the Bible, it is important to understand what a verse or a passage or a chapter or a book of the Bible meant to the people who first received it. Who was writing? Who were the recipients? What were the special circumstances that occasioned the writing of the letter or of the gospel? <clears throat> Once we understand what a passage meant to the people uh, to whom and for whom it was written, uh, as or in our case, to whom it was spoken, then we're able to see how God intends us to apply it in our time. Was the teaching we find in the farewell discourse intended only for the disciples or for us as well? Much of what Jesus taught the disciples applies to us by extension. It's very easy for us to hear him saying these exact same words to us. There were some promises made to the disciples, though, that benefit us, although they are not meant for us in the same way they were meant for the disciples. How do we know the difference? Context, of course, but we also take instruction, and this is really important for this morning. We also take instruction from the way believers of all ages have responded to the text, especially those who wrestled with these issues in the early church. Here is a question. Does the promise that the Holy Spirit, the promise that Jesus made to his disciples, that the Holy Spirit would help them remember all things Jesus had said to them mean that he will bring special words from Jesus to our own minds individually? No, for many and obvious reasons. We were not there. We have never sat down with Jesus and had a conversation. And we know that the Holy Spirit will never tell us anything that doesn't line up with God's word. When I was in Bible college, we would occasionally hear uh, of a marriage proposal that went something like this. A young man would say to his uh, desired uh, girlfriend, or the girlfriend that he desired, the woman that he desired, the Lord has told me I'm supposed to marry you. He has told me that you are supposed to marry me. The response would often be, uh, he hasn't told me that, so please remove yourself from my presence now. <laughs> Such a marriage proposal is bogus because I do not receive direct revelation from God or truth that is revealed directly from God because when truth is revealed directly from God to a person, it is truth that all believers should accept. We may sense that God is doing something special or we may sense him leading us a certain way. Please understand, I'm not saying that anytime you think the Holy Spirit is leading you to do something, that's bogus, by no means. But most of the time, what he leads us to do is consistent with the truth that is in his word. And so we may sense something that God is telling us, but we do not get truth that is intended for everyone. We get that, right? Well, not everyone understands that. But the early church sorted this out very quickly. And that benefits us today. How do we know that the Bible, the 27 books that we have in the New Testament, 
how do we know that the Bible is God's word? The New Testament books were written from roughly A.D. 40 to A.D. 90, if you believe, as I do, that the Apostle John's books were written late in the first century, in the late uh, 80s to around A.D. 90. These, uh, there were in these books, in these New Testament books, were letters written to churches or gospels that were written, accounts of Jesus' life. There were authoritative claims within the books. And the early church accepted some of the writings of the apostles and those who had been with Jesus or had had personal contact with Jesus or with an apostle. They accepted some of those as authoritative. There was a quality in the accepted books that was seen and sensed by all believers. Not every believer, but the great majority of believers. In 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16, Peter acknowledged as scripture, letters written by the apostle Paul that had circulated among the churches. And when it was written to one church, it would be copied by someone and taken to other churches. And Paul would sometimes say, make sure that all the churches in the area read this. This is important to understand. The early church was extremely careful to give authority to only books that met all the criteria that had been established for authority. The 27 books that we have in the New Testament were quickly recognized as scripture. Although since the early church was persecuted, it would not be until the fourth century when an official document recognized these 27 books as New Testament scripture. But the early church believed the same. There were other books in circulation during the first few centuries that did not meet the standard that the church required to be accepted as authoritative. So it was a serious-minded process that the Holy Spirit superintended. So what does it mean for us that the Holy Spirit would bring the exact words of Jesus to the disciples' minds? It means that we can have confidence that the Holy Spirit has perfectly preserved Scripture so that we have the Word of God before us. This process is wonderfully described in Ephesians 2, 19-22. I'm going to give you just a moment to turn <clears throat> to Ephesians 2, verses 19-22. to Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, he's talking to Gentiles, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God who in the past had been, had consisted mostly or, or, or which had consisted mostly of Jewish believers. But he says now in verse 20, you are built on the foundation of, of the apostles and prophets, both Old Testament and New Testament prophets. Christ Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom 
the whole structure, the household of God, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You can see I'm going to run out of time for today's text, but this is too important for us not to hear John Stott describe what we believe about how God founded the New Testament, which has formed the church. Here's John Stott's quote. Just as a foundation cannot be tampered with once it has been laid and the superstructure is being built upon it, so the New Testament foundation of the church is inviolable and cannot be changed by any additions, subtractions, or modifications offered by teachers who claim to be apostles or prophets today. The church stands or falls by its loyal dependence on the foundation truths which God revealed to his apostles and prophets and which are now preserved in the New Testament scriptures. Amen. So, back to John 14 now, and moving on to verses 26 and 27, we get the sense that Jesus knew what they were thinking. Think maybe so. You are worried about me going away, but I am leaving you with peace, and not peace that the world gives. Have you not noticed how the world is, is scrambling for peace and they find none? But we have a peace that Jesus gave, not a peace that the world can give. <clears throat> and he goes on to say, you are worried about me going away, but I'm leaving with you with, with peace. If you would trust me, you would understand and you will see God's plan unfold in ways that will thrill your souls unlike anything you have known so far. What did Jesus mean when he said that he would leave them peace? If you observe the apostles' lives in the book of Acts, it is unlikely you will conclude that they lived peaceful lives. But they were never more alive and more content than they were after Pentecost. When when Jesus had already returned to be with his Father in heaven and the Holy Spirit had come to indwell believers... They understood that their mission was a mission and ministry of reconciliation, a ministry of peace, if you will, and they were content. It's kind of um, uh, legal language uh, between nations. Uh, When nations are at war with one another, they need peace. They need a treaty. And, and, And Jesus was saying, I'm giving you peace, and you will extend this peace to the world, this offer of peace to God or to the world from God through what is about to happen in the next few days, which will make sense to you as it comes. Uh, Look, there is not a lot of peace at present, but for those who do not know Jesus, COVID-19 is not their biggest problem. Their lack of peace with God is their biggest problem. And the disciples knew that they had an eternal life-saving message. 
That was the case in that day. It's the case in our day. We are keepers of the same message. In an age where every utterance that believers make is run through a contemporary cultural grid, and when Christians are considered to all be like the most extreme among us, take a New York Times editorial just a few days ago uh, as an example, in such a culture to talk about eternity when people may die is likely to get you into trouble. How dare you think like that? How dare you assume people are going to die? You just want, look, what people say about us, we can't help. And we are not in near as much trouble as, as the first century church was. And there is every bit as much urgency now as there was then. I find myself being more urgent in my communications with others. Are you looking and praying for opportunities to share the gospel? Our reason, just like the disciples' reason, although we understand it better now, our reason for optimism is found in verse 28, where we witness a wild, a mild, not a wild, a mild rebuke that Jesus delivered to his disciples, saying, You are so concerned about yourselves that you have no idea what it will mean for me to return to the glory that I enjoyed at my Father's right hand before coming to earth. You should be happy for me, and you don't know that my Father is going to send the Holy Spirit. Well, okay, that was back in verse 26. There's more about this in home group, and there's more about it uh, later when we see that Jesus will send the Spirit in, in, the, in the place of the Father or for the Father. So um, we're, we're going to talk more about that as we go. But Jesus said the Holy Spirit is coming in my name to complete the mission of reconciliation that I have begun. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Son will be exalted in glory because... He has fully obeyed the Father's plan for redemption, which included, which will include in the next few days after Jesus was speaking, his death on the cross as a sacrificial lamb who forgives the sins of the world of all who repent of their sins and believe that Jesus died for them. <clears throat> That's a problem for most of us too, isn't it though, to hear that it's going to be difficult, but really it's for your good. Our plans and desires always get in the way of God's plan for the world. Now, surely when our hearts are delighting in him, according to Psalm 37, he will give us the desires of our heart, which means he'll give us the right desires and then he will meet them. But when we try to manage and, and structure our life just so that everything is good for us, events always eventually remind us that we're not nearly as in control as we have always assumed that we are. When Jesus said, the Father is greater than I, we know that Jesus did not mean that the Father 
was greater than Jesus in essence, but surely the Father was in a different position than Jesus was in his incarnational state as he stood before the disciples and, and before he returned to heaven. Jesus was also likely pointing to the truth that the Father is the grand architect of all plans. And so in the same way, we're going to soon learn in this farewell discourse that the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus rather than to himself. Jesus can say, the Father is greater than I, even though the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal God. The point is, God is on his throne, and he is in control. Even now, with the coronavirus, and with any plague or arms or anything that come against us in the future, God is on his throne. He is sovereign, and believers understand that he is good, although we must be reminded of that frequently. I'm reminding you, I may need you to remind me this next week. God is sovereign and he is good. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 29 that when events occur that rock their worlds, they should remember two things. One, he told them this would happen, so don't be surprised. Two, God is in control. The time for chaos, Jesus told them in verse 30, was imminent. The prince of this world, Satan, was coming for Jesus, but he could only do, Satan could only do what he was allowed to do by the grand architect, God. Thus, Jesus said, he has no claim on me. Why? Because Jesus was God, but also because Jesus never sinned. He walked in obedience to his father's command. And his father's plan would defeat Satan in spectacular fashion. When Jesus said to his disciples, rise, let us go from here. <clears throat> On the one hand, he was saying, let's leave this room where we have eaten the Passover. But he was also saying, God's plan has been set in motion, and it's almost time. So did Jesus and the disciples linger as verse, chapters 15 and 16 uh, took place, or were they walking along the streets of Jerusalem? I, I tend to think the other, but either way, it works. Eventually, they were going to make their way to Gethsemane, where Jesus would pour out his soul in heart and agony before the Father, and in obedience and in love for us, go through with the plan where he was arrested, uh, betrayed by Judas, arrested, taken, tried, beaten, crucified for our sins, buried where he lay for three days, and then gloriously resurrected. We're going to be thinking about all of these events in the next couple of weeks to, for Palm Sunday and Easter. So what is God doing in these days? He is getting our attention, for starters. How many of our plans begin with the ministry of reconciliation for the world to God at the head of the list instead of 
thinking about our own good and our own security. A staff member at TBR used to say that the cause of warning is getting. In other words, the more we receive, the more we want. And the more we want, the further we move from serving God. Now, I didn't say the more we receive, the, more, the further we move removed from God or removed from serving God. But the more we desire to consume upon ourselves, the further we move from serving God. One by one, we build conveniences and distractions into our lives until they become our masters. These idols that we have built for ourselves consume us (coughs) and destroy our lives. Jesus' life was utterly different. He always obeyed his Father. He always put the needs of others ahead of his own. And he offers peace to his followers that the world cannot give. I want to close this morning with a reading from Paul David Tripp's devotional titled, My Heart Cries Out for You, or My Heart Cries Out, I'm sorry, Gospel Meditations for Everyday Life. If you're familiar with Paul David Tripp, it will not surprise you that this devotion that Allison pointed out to me speaks to the place many believers find themselves today with the world upside down. It is titled, Wanting. You may want to close your eyes as I read. It is the deepest disease, the disastrous delusion, the insane quest, the foolish hope, the universal tragedy. It cannot be avoided. No one is able to escape. We are not wise enough, pure enough, strong enough, submissive enough or humble enough. We are born longing for what we cannot, should not, must not, and will not ever have. We come into this world wanting to be kings, working to construct kingdoms of our own, wanting to be in the center, wanting glory all our own, wanting to sit on the throne reserved for you. We defend our autonomy. We believe in our sufficiency. We live independently. We ignore our true identity. It is sin's sad legacy written deep in history, capturing all humanity. There is no rescue, no escape, No neat way out but you. You came as manger infant, suffering servant, dying substitute, pleasing son, perfect friend, righteous life, victory and death, as king to be a king. You would have no physical throne, no palace guard, no adoring court, No political power. You would establish something greater, a better kingdom, a better throne, a greater glory. You would set up your kingdom in our hearts. 
satisfy us with your reign. Envelop us in your glory. Our kingship is our doom. Your throne is our hope. It is for your glory. It is for our good. And we are thankful. Amen. We are thankful indeed. After this service is concluded, I want to encourage you to go back to our text, John 14, 25 through 31, and read it together as a family. And let's all see what we have learned from this text. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Burn it deep into our hearts. And I pray that everyone who hears this prayer, all who are listening and those who are not, would be kept in these days, kept closely to you. Give us opportunities to share the life changing, life-saving, eternal life-saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel. May we be led to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, even as we preach it to those who are around us. We glorify you, exalt Jesus in our hearts, and we pray in his name. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers to you, Father, according to the grand design of the grand architect. Thank you for exalting Jesus in our hearts. In his name we pray. Amen. See you next time. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.